Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the RevDam Rule of Law podcast. My name is Oliver Garner. Our guest today is Daniel Hagedus. Daniel is a senior fellow of the German Marshall Fund, and he has expertise in populism and democratic backsliding in Central and Eastern Europe and the foreign affairs of the Visegrad countries. Today, we'll be discussing recent events in Central and Eastern Europe following the Polish elections last month. Daniel, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Pleasure is mine. Thank you, Oliver, for having me. To start our conversation, why do you think that the Polish opposition were able to succeed in the recent elections where the Hungarian opposition failed in 2022? Uh, thank you, Oliver. I think this is an excellent question and it provides us uh, enough food for thought, practically for uh, uh, for the whole podcast session. But I, I try to narrow down practically the uh the main angles because i think we we can we can have different venues how we how we approach uh this question so i think we see uh, clear differences uh, uh at the field of electoral mobilization uh in the in the institutional uh affairs and and background that uh that impact the competitiveness of the election the international reactions the personal uh, uh question within the opposition the wider perception uh, in the society, how the importance or the voter shed character of this election uh, is seen, output legitimacy. So we have a different different uh, uh, topics what we can address. Um, what when we when we start with, with the electoral dimension, um, I think the Polish opposition was able to succeed due to the high level of participation. And especially that this high level of participation also impacted that traditional rural areas, which were seen as the heartlands and are practically the heartlands of the of the illiberal radical right parties, law and justice in Poland, but also uh, Fidesz and, and Hungary. So obviously the key question is how the opposition was able to manage to broaden uh, practically its base in, in that electoral uh, segment. And uh, and I think there are at least three more or less convincing replies practically out uh, on, on the market, which were formalized by, by different analysts and, uh, and commentators. And one is that the level of uh, of polarization and and hate narrative which was much less sophisticated uh than cultivated by Fidesz and much more brutal uh in uh, in practically the the forging of uh, of uh, uh enemies and and enemy concepts society that was even too much for for an apolitical large apolitical segment of uh, of the Polish society and uh, and they just protected practically their private sphere and their usual way of life against that intrusion or intervention of, of hateless politics uh, into their life. The second one, uh, and it also impacts the question of output legitimacy, uh, actually, and uh, in contrary to the main impression, especially which, uh, which is tied to uh, banning of of Ukrainian grain import in protection of Polish farmers, actually the Polish government did make a couple of of, uh, of moves which violated the fundamental interest of this agricultural electoral base. One of the most important part of that was the animal protection law, uh, 
which uh, which was negotiated uh, last year and was widely unpopular uh, in uh, in this segment. Mm -hmm. uh, so we see different points where we can find convincing arguments why this time a significant part of the PIS electorate was less convinced that practically uh, ticking the box aside law and justice is actually the good idea this time. When we switch to the institutional uh, components, and then I think the most crucial point is the quality of media pluralism in the two countries and the level of uh, of the political control incumbent parties were able to exert over the over the media landscape. Um, obviously, public broadcasters are more or less on the same level in in both countries. There are sheer mouthpieces of the of the incumbent party and and practically uh, cultivate a level of of political discourse which is at a very primitive and aggressive level. I think it's fair to put it in that undiplomatic way, but we see real differences, not only in the extent of media pluralism, but how, for example, what the level of quality reporting uh, in the private media segment. And here, I think we have to emphasize that television is, is still a crucial medium. And we see very fundamental differences between the qualities of the primary private television station TVN in Poland uh, and the representatives of that market segment in, in Hungary, which is RTL Club and, and ATV for those who know potentially the, the Hungarian uh, media market. Uh, and here I just would like to emphasize that while TVN was always very engaged in addressing all controversial issues around the government in a very critical way, that's not the case in Hungary, where, where RTL Club often offers a sort of sanitized version of political realities in, in Hungary and uh, is not attacking especially family members or close associates of the prime minister uh, and, uh, and, and his political entourage. Uh, and also ATV, which offers practically the main stage for uh, for Hungarian opposition politicians. Meanwhile, it's uh, a clearly anti-emigration uh, media channel, which very often clearly uses the vocabulary uh, of the Hungarian regime, uh, offering practically a very strange combination that uh, opposition voters, meanwhile, they are listening and watching uh, their, their main candidates they are also exposed practically to the clean language and pure language and narrative of the Hungarian government. So we can also see here clear, uh, clear differences. Obviously, uh, Hungarian commentators would emphasize the still different characteristics of the electoral regime, that the Polish one offers a higher level of, of popularity. Uh, it's not a super majoritarian system. So obviously in the Hungarian electoral system, PIS would have uh, a clear majority, even if not a, a super majority. Uh, potentially an, an under-discussed topic is uh, is the nature of, of international reactions. And, uh, and here I just would like to emphasize the importance of, especially of the United States. But in a very committed way, it exerted significant political leverage and pressure over the Polish regime in protection of TVN when, uh, when the Polish government 
wanted practically to, to push out the US investor from this private television company. And also both the United States and European Union reactions to the planned Lex Tusk legislation this year, which, uh, which could have been allowed uh, the regime to practically disqualify important opposition players from, from the election contest. And I think if we imagine that Lex Tusk could come into force and TVN were already under government control, the outcome of this election could be significantly different from what we have seen uh, on, uh, on in the night of October 15. Uh, and if we compare that with the international approach to the 2022 Hungarian elections, when the mainstream, mainstream approach was not to introduce the EU sanctions under the conditionality regulation in advance to the election, just to avoid the accusations from the Hungarian government there is an intervention into the domestic affairs of the country, then it's obvious that we see two different stories. And I think the main lesson learned for all international partners is that it's better to intervene before elections, because after the election, there will be a completely new political landscape and the window of opportunity will be gone for, for a long period of time. Uh, and just very briefly touching upon the, the point, points that uh, that were left, when it comes to the personal, uh, I am definitely not an analyst who, who repeatedly uses all opportunities to to emphasize the weaknesses of the Hungarian uh, opposition and and practically beat opposition candidates. But uh, but it's it, it's an objective matter that having a seasoned and successful former prime minister and president of uh, of the European Council was qualitatively different from the personal offer of the Hungarian opposition, where practically Fidesz pundits could rightfully point out that the only person with a significant government experience is Ferenc Gürcsány, who is definitely not a, uh, an attractive offer for a large part of the, of the Hungarian uh, electorate. So the question of the competence, the government competence, could not be raised uh, by the incumbent side in a manner that it was possible in, in Hungary. I think it was also a clear difference that in a large part of the Polish electorate, the perception was widespread that this is really a watershed moment and potentially the, the last time when Poland can have democratic elections. Mm. And against that background, voting for a change is essential and points beyond practically the selection of, uh, of uh, parties for government position. Uh, and last but not least, when it comes to the output legitimacy, uh, I think luck is potentially the most important variable in, in politics, but unfortunately we can't measure, but we also cannot underestimate its importance. And here the question of timing was essential. Early 2022, uh, the Hungarian society was not exposed to that level of record inflation, uh, which is obviously present since then in but which was also present in, in Poland and heavily impacted uh, uh, electoral attitudes with regard to the government. Uh, we already mentioned the animal protection law, which, which significantly decreased the output legitimacy of, uh, of the PIS government in, in important segments of the electorate. 
and obviously a very crucial point was uh, the previous abortion law, uh, which absolutely alienated uh, PIS from the urban center, center-right voters, and it made them an existential question that irrespectively who will come, for example, to government, that that party or that uh, political coalition should have uh, a progressive approach to abortion and women rights. And I think it was very well measured by uh, by survey companies close to the Polish opposition. And I can remember, and I have to admit, I also belong uh, to those analysts who contemplated whether it's not a too radical step uh, when, the, when the opposition program was announced to claim a liberalization of, uh, of the abortion right, but apparently it was a well-measured, uh, very uh, politically realistic move because I think that significantly contributed to a very widespread popular support behind uh, behind civic platform and the civic platform led three-party coalition. So these would be in nutshell practically my points where I see very significant differences between the Polish and the Hungarian case. Obviously, we just scratched uh, the surface uh, and uh, and especially uh, Polish expert with uh, with significant experience in polling and uh, and opinion surveys go much deeper. But this is the comparison. But but I can offer uh, in this case. You mentioned the powerful idea there that this may have been regarded as the last chance for a democratic election in Poland as a watershed moment. And both the elections in Poland and Hungary have been described by certain academics as free but unfair. What does this mean in practice? Yes, I think in this case, we have the opportunity to go back to, to some classics, because when it comes to uh, uneven political playing field and uh, uh, and free but not fair elections, then obviously we, we cannot circumvent uh, Lewinsky and Way and the concept of, uh, of, competitive, uh, of competitive authoritarianism. And I think if we would like to to really understand what free but not fair elections or what uneven political playing field uh, means, then we should just read this one sentence definition uh, of Lewinsky and Way uh, about uh, about uh, competitive authoritarianism. And they state that competitive, as a quote, competitive authoritarian regimes are civilian regimes in which formal democratic institutions are widely viewed as the primary means of gaining power, but in which fraud, civil liberty violations, and abuse of the state and media resources uh, so skew the playing field that the regime cannot be labeled democratic anymore. And, uh, and I think this is literally what we have seen also both in the cases of the, in an increasing manner, 2014, 2018, 2022 Hungarian elections. And here, I think we cannot miss an opportunity to emphasize that the last democratic, the last free and fair elections uh, uh, where Hungarian voters had the opportunity to cast their ballots it happened actually more than 30 years ago back in in 20 back in 2010 uh and uh and the, the same dynamics were be able to witness in poland also since 2019 so it was not the first uh free but not fair election uh in poland uh, in poland either 
but obviously in both cases, and also this time, uh, the, we were able to see that this uneven playing field is, uh, is particularly present at the field of, of media, mm -hmm. where, uh, or when uh, an opposition party representatives and incumbent representatives have uh, an uneven access to, uh, to the public, to be able to, uh, to practically address public issues and be present in the same manner in, in the public discourse. There is an overwhelming superiority on the incumbent side when it comes to media coverage, uh, when it comes to direct control uh, over a large segment of the media. Obviously, the, the public media and TVP comes first into the mind, but um, in that regard, Polish regime very successfully copycatted the, the Hungarian blueprint, especially when it came uh, to establishing control over a large segment of printed local and uh, and regional uh, media. Uh, I think most uh, most of the audience know the case when, uh, when the Polish energy company Orland uh, practically bought post acquired Polska Press and uh, and with that uh, the largest local and, and regional media portfolio uh, in, uh, in the country. And we, but we can also uh, observe a similarly significant incumbent advantage when it comes to campaign financing. Uh, first and foremost, through the outsourcing of, uh, of political uh, and uh, electoral campaign to government information campaign. It's a very widespread practice, uh, practice both in uh, in Hungary and uh, and Poland. The main reason, uh, according to some observers, to organize the anti-immigration campaign was obviously beside mobilizing the core electorate of of PIS, also to create practically uh, an absolutely separate campaign fund for uh, for the regime, which is not limited by by the by the party financing and campaign financing uh, rules in the country and uh, last but not least we also have to mention the role of uh, state-owned companies and especially PK and Orland against in this case uh, their donations to the individual uh, campaigns of uh, of PIS candidates their donations to the mainstream campaign uh, and their contribution in in significantly other formats to uh, to this whole political struggle, mm -hmm. and uh, and this school toolkit is is very similar, obviously, also to uh, to uh, the methods of Hungarian government. What I would still emphasize and underline in the case of Hungary is also the use of government organized, non government organizations as as campaign tools, because once again, they are not subject to the same rules as political parties in the uh, in the election campaign contest. And also in 2022, but uh, and but also previously in 2018, Hungarian state-owned companies donated large amounts of financial resources to uh, to Hungarian gogos, who use that finances both for government campaigns, but uh, but also to uh, harass, intimidate, and uh, and attack the public enemies of the government, opposition politicians, NGOs, uh, and uh, with that way, they also very much amplified 
government discourse and government narrative in the in the public space. So we see these venues, uh, which are definitely very central uh, to have free but not fair elections. Obviously, we could go beyond uh, that uh, uh, that categories and and also address the issue of uh, of the election uh, or the electoral regime and the electoral system, but. Uh, but most of the analysts and also the election observers mainly emphasize the importance of media and, and campaign financing. And, uh, and just to highlight that, uh, that it's not a, a theoretical contemplations of, of analysts and, and academics, if you allow me just once again, I'd like to quote one phrase, and this is from the official OSC uh, election observation report about the October 15 Polish elections, which states that the October 15 parliamentary elections were competitive and voters had a wide choice of political alternatives, but the ruling party enjoyed clear advantage through its undue, uh, undue influence over the use of state resources and the public media. So I think this could be also a schoolbook definition of, uh, of free but not fair election. And this is the first starting phrase uh, of this election monitoring report, a free but not fair election is where the ruling party enjoys clear advantage over its competitors through undue influence over the use of state resources. And end of the quote. No, thank you. I think that's a very uh, clear definition for our listeners. And considering the implications now for the European level, do you believe that the Polish opposition victory means that the Council and the European Council? We'll now proceed with a vote under Article 7 to determine whether there is a clear risk of breach of EU values in Hungary. Um, thank you. I think that's one of the most basic rules for political analysts not to not to engage into predictions. <laughs> um, um, I think the answer to this question depends from uh, from the strategic consideration of, uh, of Prime Minister Tusk. Mm -hmm. And whether, for some reason, he he seeks a showdown or a confrontation with uh, the Hungarian Prime Minister Orban, whether for some reason that will be part of his political agenda or uh, or not. Uh, my very weak prediction is that first, uh, for good reason, Tusk will seek some level of pragmatic cooperation with, uh, with Orban uh, and, uh, and his regime in Hungary. First and foremost, for very rational strategic reasons to secure uh, the EU funding uh, and financial aid for, uh, for Ukraine at the end of the year or beginning of, of next year. I think everyone uh, invested in the support uh, of Ukraine knows that European stakeholders should start to look beyond 2024, should start be prepared for an eventuality that Donald Trump might return to the White House, and that will have obviously far-reaching consequences uh, on, uh, on the military and financial support Ukraine may receive uh, from early 2025. It also means that both the European Union and member states individually should step up their efforts. And in that regard, 
I think even the responsible strategic approach from the next Polish prime minister is try to mitigate Hungarian potential vetoes. And obviously, uh, uh, a very wide confrontation with Orban is not necessarily serving that strategic purpose. However, if irrespectively of, of that attempts, uh, the Hungarian regime will continue blocking different levels of European uh, aid to Ukraine. May it be the reimbursement of, of military uh, aid from the European Defense Facility or the general agreement about the raising of the EU budget ceiling and, uh, and the 60 billion financial aid to, to Ukraine, then obviously that will, that will also alter the strategic considerations of key European players, and I am sure that will also impact the strategic considerations of uh, of, uh, of the North Cusp. And uh, and obviously there is also uh, another side of uh, of the story, and it is that uh, how we will ask to see a confrontation with Orban in the context of his domestic crusade for uh, reintroducing or re-strengthening rule of law, liberal constitutionalism and pluralist democracy in Poland. If his approach will be primarily domestic focus uh, and his perception will be that everything beyond that is a strategic overextension and he cannot afford spending resources on a confrontation with Orban at European level, then, then obviously the focus will be domestic and uh, and uh, an escalation at European level is less likely. If Tusk will see these two challenges as practically being the two sides of the same coin, and if he thinks that he can also benefit at domestic level from certain successes uh, in uh, in fighting in fighting illiberal and authoritarian drives at the level of the European Union, then obviously an escalation is is, is more likely. Here, what I would like to emphasize is that this is obviously a very it will be a very important uh, venue of advocacy for uh, for civil society for international partners in the most to to come. So I don't think that it's. Uh, uh it's an already closed question uh i am convinced about the contrary that uh the polish perceptions and the future polish government politics can be very well influenced and and, and shaped uh in the in the time uh coming and ultimately potentially just uh just a lost and very personal point politicians are ultimately also human beings so it's it's also a question what sort of of legacy would like to leave Donald Tusk behind and uh, and whether triggering the, the downfall of Prime Minister Orban is uh, is his ambition to be part of his ultimate political political legacy. So there are a lot of I think very objective strategic considerations which will which will decide how Poland will behave at the European stage vis-a-vis vis-a-vis Hungary. But I think that in some form, even the previous personal relationship and future personal legacy related lens of, of Donald Tusk will also play some role in that regard. That's a fascinating consideration for the future. And of course, 
the elections in Poland were not the only elections we've seen in Central and Eastern Europe over the autumn. And we saw elections in Slovakia that have led to uh, Robert Fico being appointed as Slovakia's prime minister again. And there are already reports that he may be looking to implement certain plays from the liberal playbook that we have seen in Hungary and Poland. What do you think could be done to ensure that Slovakia does not go down the same path of rule of law backsliding? Yes, uh, I think this is a this is a very crucial question, and uh, and based on the announcement of uh, of Prime Minister Fico, yes, I think we very soon can expect some uh, strike down both on the Slovak civil society, but uh, but also on representatives of uh, of Slovak independent uh, media. And uh, my answer doesn't go into the direction of. Uh, uh, of institutional or responses, because I am also convinced I have been following uh, the autocratization of Hungary and the EU reactions on that now for for thirteen years, and and objectively, institutions matter, but I think it's even more strategic and more important what's the what's the basic political perception and political approach of key stakeholders because that approach determines the political will, the political readiness, either to use the available toolkit, the way how the toolkit is used, and uh, and also the investment in the future to developing further uh, items to, to address or, or combat uh, authoritarian developments. So practically, my, my advice is, affect that the basic level of uh, of political approach uh, i think it will be important especially based on the lessons learned with hungary and poland to show red flags uh, and draw red lines not in the manfred weberian sense but um, in, <laughs> in the primary meaning uh, of uh, of the concept so draw that red lines as early and as clear as possible uh, because I think the main goal here is always to influence the cost-benefit calculations of domestic elites that are prone to, to authoritarian and illiberal power threat. And if in a very objective and consequential way it is made clear at the beginning that there will be a tit for that, there will be a cost for, uh, for every single uh, non-democratic move, this is the way how you can influence the cost-benefit calculations, how you can influence uh, the political behavior of the actors. My second key advice would be that there is no good faith. So there is no, there shouldn't be any future Slovak legislation related to key institutional components of the political system. May it be the electoral system, may it be media, may it be civic liberties impacting civic activism and uh, and the operational environment for non-governmental organization. If anything in that field, that area is controversial, then actually that should be approached and interpreted in bad faith. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it's not impacting uh, uh, the the basic European principles of 
of mutual trust or honest cooperation. Just the contrary, it's really a lesson learned over a decade of illiberal political dynamics. Um, Robert Fico is not a carte blanche for, uh, uh, for his European partners as a Slovak prime minister. We know his policies. We know where his policies led Slovakia in 2018. Uh, we know that together with Malta, Slovakia was the other EU countries where investigative journalists were killed for their work. Uh, I think in, in several respects, obviously, Slovak democracy has been performing better, even under Fico, than, for example, in the case of, uh, of Hungary and Poland. Uh, these were not his merits. These were the merits of the Slovak political system and especially the very proportional electoral system, which always practically guarantees a high level of, of proportionality in the country. But in areas where his government has had widespread influence, uh, and that is obviously the, the investigation and prosecution of political corruption, intimidation of, of journalists, creating shrinking spaces for independent media and civil society. I think his track record is more than really negative. And, uh, and I think his future step, steps should be interpreted by his international partners against the background uh, as well. And potentially uh, just reiterating or reformulating my point on international reactions, what I made uh, um, uh, in connection with, uh, with the Polish and Hungarian comparison. Um, Slovakia has already some experience with international sanctions, not within the European Union, but in the US-Slovak bilateral relationship. We shouldn't forget that uh, that Marian Kochner, the person made responsible, the person potentially responsible for uh, for the murder of Jan Kuciak was put on uh, on the global Magnitsky list. And uh, former Slovak uh, prosecutor general uh, Jakub Trinka uh, was also put on the sanction list and is not able to enter the United States. Um, especially in light of the fact that uh, that smear-led left populist governments always have some anti-American, anti-transatlantic trends and, and flares. Uh, and against that background, tensions in the transatlantic relations of the country can be very, uh, very easily predicted. Um, I think also the United States can play a key role here, shaping the cost-benefit calculations of uh, of the Slovak regimes and uh, and doing the red lines. That if anything happens at the legislative field which seriously uh, infringes on the rights of civil society organizations, seriously, uh, uh, if seriously limits political pluralism in the country, it can result in uh, in further Slovak individuals being put on the Magnitsky list, cutting them uh, from the international financial system, causing very significant financial harm also for the uh, for the tutelage of uh, of Prime Minister Fico, and and hopefully that sort of messages messaging can help keeping Slovakia on.
in a more or less liberal democratic path for the next four years to come. Mm. You touched in an earlier answer upon what the impact of the Ukrainian issue could be for Polish and Hungarian relations uh, after the election and the opposition of victory. Do you think that the opposition victory will change anything else in the dynamics of the EU-Russia-Ukraine foreign relations? Um, I think the primary primary impact will be that uh, that the Polish-Ukraine policy will be business as usual again, because we have seen a significant deviation from that uh, that path in the in the last months. Obviously, certain Polish analysts would uh, uh, would question that uh, uh, that um, or that conclusion. But if we consider the Polish ban on the Ukrainian grain import, uh, sort of uh, import of Ukrainian grain, Ukrainian grain export, uh, if we consider the statement of uh, of Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki about the, the stopping of the transferring of Polish military aid, which has been interpreted in very different ways, in a very active uh, uh, active manner uh, after this statement was was made. But uh, I can just quote uh, a US diplomat with whom I had a discussion, and uh, she just told that uh, she hasn't seen that level of gaslighting uh, in, uh, <laughs> in international politics for, for a while. So practically, huge energies were invested in explaining why the words of the Polish prime minister are not meaning what they are literally meaning, without either raising the opportunity that it was a, either a very significant communication failure from the part of Prime Minister Morawiecki, or that actually they you know, signalize some change in the in the Polish approach. So, uh, in, in nutshell, I think that uncertainties uh, in the future approach to Poland uh, are now ruled out and uh, and hopefully Poland will return back to that quality of, of strategic thinking at the field of, of foreign policy, which is absolutely unique in a, in a Central and Eastern European comparison. So no other country has that level of, of strategic tradition uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, and strategic thinking. Uh, like Poland has, even Czechia, with its tradition of the Havelian foreign policy, I would say that that approach was challenged more by key representatives of uh, of the Czech state and Czech foreign policy, Klaus Zeman Babish, than uh, than it had followers. Uh, the real question is in the case of Poland, obviously, how far can this renewed engagement influence? Uh, European approach uh, in uh, in the years to come, and and actually, I know that my my analysis won't necessarily be uh, popular in Central and Eastern Europe, but uh, I think that a new Polish Prime Minister Donald Tusk will will have to conduct potentially more convincing work among its regional allies in the future to keep uh, financial and military support to Ukraine than in case of the former uh, uh, usual suspects who were not so committed in this support like Germany or, or France. 
the, we were able to see a strategic pivot uh, in the case of French President Macron when it comes to Ukraine, even including a potential EU membership uh, for the country. We have seen just uh, uh, last and this week the really uh, unilateral renewal and commitment of the German federal government to the continuation of intense military uh, support to, to Ukraine. While we have seen in parallel the suspension of military aid uh, on the part of, uh, of Slovakia, uh, I think we will see the Hungarian government digging in, in blocking everything uh, related to, to that question. So most likely, obviously, we can't predict and foresee what sort of changes the election of Donald Trump might trigger in the political scene especially if in the aftermath of the European parliamentary election, uh, a once again pro-Russian and Ukrainian skeptic conservative radical right will be strengthened uh, at the European stage. But I think in 2024, uh, the main focus of a renewed Polish commitment should be convincing and rallying regionalized again uh, for, uh, for a committed and, uh, and strength support to Kyiv. You provided some robust ideas for how the EU could address potential Slovakian backsliding. But for our final question, what more holistic reform would you propose at a future EU treaty amendment to try and address the root cause of a liberal backsliding once and for all for the future? Uh, thank you for this, this question. I try to avoid uh, a straightforward answer. Uh, and the reason is very simple. As convinced I am that an EU reform is unavoidable to, to an EU enlargement. And I think everyone really uh, would like to see Ukraine, Western Balkan countries, Moldova, potentially also Georgia, uh, as a member of the European Union within the next 10 to 15 years in a responsible way cannot avoid also the question of addressing the EU reform. Notwithstanding this, I am politically very skeptical whether an EU reform is feasible and can come within the next three years in any way. And without a treaty reform, I think all of these suggestions for, uh, for a revamp of the EU institutional toolkit to protect uh, rule of law, democracy, and fundamental rights in the member states. That's not pointless, but it's really within the sphere of uh, of academic thinking and uh, and uh, and just making some policy considerations. Uh, and I just would like to to underline that even though I would be uh, very much in favor of suspending, for example, the voting right of the Hungarian regime. Uh, in the European Union, which also will happen through Article 7, Paragraph uh, 2 of the Treaty on the European Union, that, that would solve a couple of problems, for example, including the question of providing financial aid, aid to Ukraine. It will solve the question of EU treaty reform, because uh, the ratification procedure uh, in, in that regard is, is different from, from voting in the council. And obviously, 
Potentially, we can discuss also that in uh, with EU lawyers in a different format, but I don't think that uh, the member states' sovereign right in the ratification procedure will also be suspended by, by Article 7. So obviously, a lot of ideas were already floated uh, with regard of such a reform, lowering the threshold of Article 7 procedure, for example, the expansion of the conditionality mechanism that uh, it allows financial sanctions and the suspension of uh, of EU cohesion transfers, even in the case of uh, of rule of law violations which don't have a direct impact on the EU's financial interests. So I think all of these things were were already written, said, and and repeated several times. Where uh, where I would make some considerations. And, and some suggestions, I think there are a bit more controversial uh, things. And although I'm a political scientist and not a lawyer, they are much more of, of legal nature. And, uh, and these are two interrelated points. I think first, uh, the Charter of the Fundamental Rights of the European Union today is only binding for member states when they implement EU law. That's the famous Article 51 of the Charter. Mm -hmm that article should be eliminated once and forever. Uh, the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union should be legally binding for all EU member states, irrespectively whether they implement European or national law. And, uh, and under the Charter, member states should be also sued and citizens should be able to sue member states uh if uh their rights were violated by uh, uh by the court uh, uh of the european union and uh and my second point very much building on on the first one is that the jurisdiction of cgau the court of justice of the european union should be significantly extended uh cgeu today is not an appeal court and I think it should be made a court like the European Court on Human Rights in Strasbourg is. It wouldn't be a duplication because the legal corpus uh, they use, so the European Convention on Human Rights and Fundamental Freedom in the case of, uh, of ECHR, and practically the totality of EU law is significantly different. But if after exhausting all of the of the national legal remedies, all EU citizens had the right to appeal by uh, by the Court of Justice of the European Union. Obviously, that would be a, a significant step in the direction of uh, of legal federalism. Uh, so I I admit, but that would establish practically uh, a sort of uh, uh, European constitutional court, in a sense, which is accessible for every EU citizen. And I think that would be a very significant contribution to the protection of human rights, liberal constitutionalism, and through that also pluralist uh, democracy within the European Union. Although, I just repeat my starting phase, I don't think that uh, that these reforms may come anytime soon and especially or potentially even not in that case if in some form 
and an EU reform will take place parallel to the enlargement process. Because obviously, uh, the opposition to EU reform is huge. Uh, it arguments of, uh, of national sovereignty. Uh, and because we know how the European Union is, is working, the most obvious deal to buy uh, to buy the, the political support of uh, of, uh, of critical member states is that if they agree to all of the institutional requirements, number of seats in the European Parliament, uh, number of, of commissioners in uh, in the college, uh, the new voting mechanisms uh, in the Council, the raising of unanimity requirements uh, in EU foreign affairs, and so on and so on. So the price to, uh, to be paid for their support in that area might be the lack of the revamp of the institutional toolkit when it comes to protection of rule of law and democracy in, in member states. I hope I am wrong. Uh, but uh, but we definitely will be able to see in the next couple of years how this uh, really really intriguing story that EU reform, protection of democracy, and enlargement uh, uh, will take place because this is the most important, most strategic, and most crucial political triangle that the European Union has to face uh, in the next decade. Well, thank you very much for that very original food for thought for our listeners. And I hope that a debate can perhaps continue over some of the reform proposals you've uh, suggested there. And I'd encourage our listeners to follow RevDem on X, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, and also on Instagram uh, to continue these debates in the future. Thank you so much again, Daniel, for your time today. Thank you for the opportunity.